I know as I start this sermon tonight that I'm going to kind of date myself, but most of you know my age anyway, so it's all good. I remember in the mid-70s, when I was in high school, there was this incredible, incredible singer, songwriter, and extremely talented guitarist who was skyrocketing his way to worldwide fame, to superstardom, known all over the world. His clean, pure, crisp, and refreshing country boy innocence, morality, simplicity made him, made him an enigma. It made him an almost overnight success, if there is such a thing. It was so clean and, and, and so refreshing and all of these things as he sang, as he composed, wrote songs. And if any of you play guitar, some incredibly difficult chord combinations, but at any rate, he sang these, these songs that were so, so refreshing about things like how good it was to be back home again. He sang songs about the beauty and the majesty of the great outdoors and, and the, the creation. And he sang songs about his lovely wife and how much he loved and missed her. And a lot of those elements were featured on what you call today vinyl, but we used to call them albums. Um, they were featured on the jackets or the covers, many of these things, the outdoors and his wife and, and all of these things in pristine pictures on his album covers. I idolized the man. I really did. I idolized him. I wanted to be just like him. I wanted to be able to sing and play and, and be just like him. In fact, later on after school, one of the first dates that Karen and I ever went on was to go see him at the Portland Maine Civic Center, Theater in the Round. Time went by when I was in high school. I graduated, got married, had a life and began a family of my own. And so, over the years, I kind of lost track of him. I still loved his music, but kind of lost track of, of him. I had my own things to be doing. I heard a while down the road that he'd gotten divorced. And I thought, what's wrong with this woman? <laughs> you know, here's this guy writing love songs about her and all this stuff and how, you know, and, and they got money and fame and, you know, this, this pristine country life, and how, how is that even possible? But I didn't give it too much more thought than that. A few years later, I heard that he'd gotten remarried to some singer, actress that was a lot younger than he was, and, and finally, in the late 90s, he died in, a, in an experimental plane crash. Of course, back in the 70s and the 80s and a lot of the 90s, we did not have the instantaneousness of the world at our fingertips and everything on the World Wide Web as we do today. And so, as I said, I sort of lost track of him in the details of his life because I was busy with my own, quite frankly. I never lost the love of his music. In fact, it was only within the past few months while I was doing some research on some of his music that I discovered the awful, terrible to me anyway, devastating to me, realities of who he 
apparently was and how he really lived in real life? You ever had this, this person that you idolized in the sporting world or the music world and just and all of a sudden you find out they're nowhere near what their persona was. As I was doing some research, as I said lately on the internet, I found the reason his wife divorced him after a short 15-year marriage was because of, quote unquote, his almost constant infidelity. He himself admitted that he began to cheat on his wife within weeks of their wedding due to being lonely on the road. I believe it was in his autobiography in, in film that he himself admitted, her, admitted throwing her on the kitchen table and trying to choke her. And there's all kinds of reports about fit of rage where he took a chainsaw and brought into the house and lopped the furniture into pieces. Reportedly, as I said, he went on to marry this Australian actress some 20 years or so his junior in 1988. And he was separated from her and their newborn daughter just three short years later in 1991 and a, a bitter divorce followed in 1993. His second wife relating, revealing in written reports the real life anger, threats, bullying, bitterness, jealousy, and almost nightly intoxication of the real life lived behind the kind, pure, country boy persona, which he was so known and recognized for in public consumption pretty much all over the world. Today, fast forward, today, we live in a world, there's a reason I told you all that, we live in a world that is even more aware that things are seldom, if ever, what they are pictured as being. We live in a world today that is even more aware that things are very seldom what they are pictured, portrayed, or promoted to be. You see, and the reason for that is because as a society, we have been so constantly, so continually, so intrinsically trained by decades of such stealthy deception that we're just naturally extremely suspicious of the way anything is portrayed to the point that we are now constantly skeptical. It's, and it's a subconscious thing. We don't even think about it. We question everything. We, we understand that nothing is the way it is portrayed or advertised or sold as. We totally expect things to be far less than advertised without even really thinking about it. All of this because nothing ever seems to be exactly what it is said, sold, or told, or made out to be. For example, let me give you a couple of examples. I'm going somewhere extremely important with this. That's why I'm giving you these examples. Okay, stay with me. How many of you are familiar with the show, The Alaskan Bush People? Raise your hand. Nobody except, well, okay, be honest, okay. If you're not familiar with the show, it's this show where there's this family, a bunch of kids, and they lived in the wilds of Alaska. And you get this idea from the title, Alaskan Bush People, that they're these, you know, hermits that live out in the middle of the and it's portrayed that way. And they're out here, and they, you know, started out living in these makeshift shelters and all this stuff, and, you know, they're just so poor, and, you know, like you think of, if you've seen the, the Jungle Book, you think of Mowgli type stuff. I mean, they are out there, right? And so lately they've moved down to the Continental 48, but, but it's, it's portrayed as this people that they don't have anything. 
until you see the barn and stuff on the new shows, but we'll stay away from that. But anyway, they don't have anything, and they build everything, and they make it from scratch, and they're a bunch of, you know, one of the sons is real wild, runs around the woods and all this. That's what they're portrayed as. Google them. That show is billed as a docudrama, not a documentary on this wild family living in the woods, but a docudrama. It is totally scripted. That family is estimated to be worth $60 million. Google it. They are nothing like they are portrayed to be insofar as having to live it. Listen, if you got 60 mil, you don't have to live like they live, okay? How many of you does that surprise? Raise your hands. If you're totally shocked by that news, please raise your hands. One, two. You were. We got over that. <laughs> Most of you aren't because I've given you, you know, Google it, right? And, and we see things like this all the time. For example, our cell carrier recently advertised and promoted a free upgrade, our cell carrier, free upgrade. It would only cost me $100 by the time I left that day. We've come to understand that free means you're gonna spend money, right? We know that something, when somebody says, it's free, somewhere you're gonna be less, you're gonna have less money in your wallet when you get done with whatever this free thing is than it was before you took it. We know that, it's just, it's, we suspect that. We don't even need to think about it. You don't think so? Go on the internet. Google, find people free. And you get all these websites that'll find people free, right? But you know what the problem with that is? They'll find them free, but you gotta pay for the information as to where they are. Oh, they'll find them free, but they won't tell you where they are until you pay. Things are not what they're always said to be. Listen, and I don't want to see you raise your hands. I don't think anybody would, but anyway, let me say this. How many of you really, really, honestly, truly expect that burger and fries in the commercial to look exactly that way when you pick it up at the drive-thru? Every one of them standing straight and tall like sentinels every burger perfectly placed on the bun so that it is uniform all the way around. And there's as many pieces of lettuce here sticking out as, how many really expect that? Exactly. I say all that to say this. It is exactly this type of atmosphere that we live in today, which makes modern day evangelism so incredibly difficult. Years ago, at another congregation, there was a craft group, and we used to have a certain amount of money that we could go out and buy yarn for the craft group. And so Karen and I went out shopping for yarn, and while she was getting groceries, I went up front with this whole cart full of yarn for the month. I get up there, and when I walk up to a cashier with a basket full of yarn, I get quizzical looks for some reason. Don't understand it, just happens. So the lady says, here I am, you know, and I get this beautiful, yeah, anyway. So the lady says, what's all the yarn for? <laughs> well, so many things come to mind, but anyway. So I said, well, my wife and the ladies at church, they make all these things and give them away. And this was, it wasn't her exact words, but really close to her response. She stopped for a moment and she said, 
wow. A church that actually gives back instead of taking? Think about the sadness of that statement. All this woman was apparently used to was churches that wanted your money, that took stuff from you, not that did things. Isn't that sad? Wow, a church that actually gives something instead of taking? You see, so many people today have been burned by religious shysters and charlatans that are only out to draw away disciples after themselves, Acts 20 and verse 30. So many people today have been burned by those sorts that they're no longer able to recognize when an honest, sincere, biblical, devoted New Testament Christian is only out to save their soul. They, they don't even recognize that anymore because they're programmed to be so skeptical. There are far too many lost souls out there today who have either been or known somebody that has been taken advantage of by religious false teachers who, in their greed, have exploited them with false words, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3. You know, they see some guy out of Tulsa who says he believes in miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, such as instantaneous healing, and then says he needs millions of dollars to build a hospital. Think about that. They see some of these Sunday morning televangelists and their families who live lives of extraordinary luxury and indulgence in their million, multi-million dollar. Do you understand? Do you, go online sometime. Pick your favorite tele, well, pick your least favorite, whatever. Pick a televangelist. And go online and, and look at some of the pictures of the palaces that they live in. It'll blow your mind. At least one of them that I, I looked at a few years ago online has got a 10 million, at least one $10 million home in Houston. I don't know how many other homes. Look at the pictures of some of their estates while they still say they need your money in order to sustain their missions. When you do that, certainly people have a right to be suspicious, skeptical, and especially when it comes to religious people. But that's nothing new. Turn to me in your Bibles to Matthew 23. Jesus, in his day and age as well, repeatedly warned his disciples against such hypocritical, high-handed, and self-serving religious people. And he gave warnings using some of the strongest language that he, that he used in the entire scripture. He warned his disciples, listen, everything is not what it seems with these people. Everything is not what it's being portrayed as. That was Jesus' warning in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 7. Look at what he says. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But don't do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Did you catch that? He said they're not what they're portraying themselves as being. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Oh, they tell you about all these works you've got to do in order to please God, but they ain't doing them. They ain't living what they're preaching. They ain't what they're portraying. He says all their works they do to be seen by men. It's not about God with them. They do them to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and, and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greeting in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. He said they love that, that show and they're, they're putting across this idea that they're these, these pious religious people, but Jesus said they're not 
What they're portraying themselves to be and what they actually are are two different things. Look at verses 25 through 28. Same chapter. Look what he says. He makes the point even clearer. He says to those very people, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you appear righteous. You also outwardly appear righteous. Appear, don't miss that word, I've said it three times. Four, they appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Do you see? He said, you're trying to put this across in the public persona, but that ain't what you are. You're, you're something totally different than what you're trying to convince people you are. Fact is, in today's society, people can smell a rat 20 miles away. Even if it's only a rat hair there to give off the scent, <laughs> and they even suspect there's one present even when there hasn't ever been one present. It's just where we are as a society. Everybody's suspicious. Everybody knows that when you advertise free, it don't mean free. Everybody knows the fries ain't gonna look like they do in the commercial. Everybody's skeptical. It's a subconscious thing. We don't even think about it anymore. Welcome to the world of the World Wide Web. We are here where we can prove our Skepticisms. What has all this got to do with us? Well, why this in a sermon? This has got everything to do with us. This has absolutely everything in the world to do with us, especially when it comes to evangelism. The truth is, that if we are ever going to have any legitimate chance at all of converting those that we know to Christ, then they are going to have to be able to clearly see in us the real, legitimate, resurrected Christ both alive, well, and living in us long before they ever hear any word about him from us. Did you get that? They're going to have to see. If we're going to ever talk to them about Jesus with any hope of reaching them, they are going to have to see the real, legitimate Jesus living in us, the reality because everybody's so skeptical and so suspicious. Everybody thinks churches are out to take their money, or a lot of people do, and, and they're so skeptical because they've been taken advantage of. They're gonna have to see Jesus in us before we ever talk to them about Jesus in the Word. You want proof? I'll give you proof, scriptural proof. It was precisely that same sort of sincerity, honesty, integrity, and intentions on the part of our Lord Jesus that was the determining factor in causing the thief on the cross 
to eventually change his opinion of Jesus and be converted and remembered when Jesus came into his kingdom. Was, that's what did it. He saw in Jesus everything Jesus preached and taught right there in front of him. Jesus showed him how it looked. And it quote unquote converted him. As we all know, when the day first started out, both the criminals that were being crucified with Jesus mocked, reviled, ridiculed and blasphemed him right along with the rest of the crowd. We know this from Matthew chapter 27, verses 38 through 44. And we know this from Mark chapter 15, verses 27 through 32. Both criminals blasphemed, reviled, ridiculed, mocked him right along with the rest of the crowd. But something happened to change one of those thieves' opinion of Jesus. Turn to me in your Bibles to Luke 23. You see, the one who started out with the rest of the crowd, join in the crowd in blaspheming Jesus. Watched him, saw him, saw what he did, saw how he responded, saw how he reacted. And look with me at what Jesus did, beginning in Luke 23 and verse 32. Luke 23, verse 32, there were also two others, criminals led with him to be put to death. When they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right hand, the other on his left. Here's these two men, they're crucified with him. Then Jesus, having been beaten to a bloody pulp, the, the crown of thorns, the scourging, the, 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 the nails, the blood, all of it, instead of screaming, instead of crying out how unfair it was, look what Jesus did. Right there with one of them on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's not how crucified men spent their last few minutes, praying for the ones who drove the, the spikes through their, through their flesh. That's not how men in that position died. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. Has, has somebody, and don't raise your hands, don't shake your heads, just listen. Have you ever had somebody get in your face and falsely accuse you of something? Falsely lie about you to your face. And you're in a crowd. And you know they're not telling the truth. And you've got, you've got the proof of it that you can just layer it out there and vindicate yourself and defend you. What's your first response? You want to you wanna defend yourself. It's, it's a natural instinct. Everybody does. Walk up somebody and do this, and what's the first thing they do? You know, they're ready to defend themselves. They don't go, typically, that's not their first instinct. They said he saved others. Let him save himself. He's the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, saying, hey, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And I don't think they did it kindly. 
Remember how they had treated him previously. An inscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself. Hey, you! If you're the Christ like you claim to be, help us here. Could Jesus have done it? Sure. Could have spoken a word, and his father would have put at his disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Yeah. Could Jesus with a word have said, okay, boys? Yeah. But instead, he's praying for them. Instead, he's not ridiculing them. Instead, this is, this is totally different. And this, this thief that started out blaspheming and reviling and ridiculing, what an impact that must have had because now we see only one of them doing it. But look what the other one says in verse 40. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, don't you even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. Yeah, we're rotten to the core. We know what we've done. But this man has done nothing. How would he know that? I'll tell you how he knew it. He'd been watching Jesus. He'd seen, I mean, they were right there with him. He said, this man has done nothing wrong. He's praying for his enemies. Can't you tell he's different? The thief could. And that's what changed him. He said, this man's done nothing. I, I've watched him. He, he's, he's done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I, I know you're the Lord because you are so different. Jesus said to him assuredly, I love that word there, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You see, you see how this man was converted in, in one sense? He had watched as Jesus had loved his enemies, blessed those who cursed him, and prayed for those who persecuted him. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. This thief had watched as Jesus had repaid not evil for evil, did not avenge himself and refused to be overcome by evil, but instead sought to overcome evil with good. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. This thief had watched as he who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. You see, everything Jesus professed to be, he lived. There was no denying it. Who he was in private is who he was in public. Even under the worst and most brutal and most unfair circumstances of his entire life, even in the worst possible pain and anguish imaginable, even when Jesus, listen church, even when Jesus had every right in the entire universe to lash out at these people because of the absolute unfairness of his situation, what did he do? He didn't. When he had every right and was in the presence of the very ones who were responsible for putting him there, and, and he had the total power at his disposal to do something about it, Jesus Christ did not take it out on them. And that made him totally different. And that is 
what this thief saw that caused him to change. It was the unmistakable honesty, sincerity, integrity, and presence of those godly traits and attributes in Jesus' life. In other words, it was clear to anybody who cared to watch that he was exactly what he said he was. That drew the thief on the cross to him and to be in paradise with him that day. And you know, the same thing's true in our world today. In a world that has been constantly programmed to be incredibly skeptical and to understand that when they say it's free, it's going to cost you money before you get done. In a world that expects to see something totally different from what's being portrayed to them. We need to understand that as Christians, like Jesus, that we don't talk to them about Christ unless they have first seen Christ and the reality and the integrity that we are exactly what we claim to be. I don't mean to use this term in an irreverent sense, but if we're trying to sell them on Christianity, then they need to have seen Jesus in us. What we portray to them with our words needs to match exactly what they have seen in our lives. You know, in the first century church, this was a problem too. Turn to me in your Bibles to Romans 2. Romans 2. If you want a go-to set of scriptures to prove how important this is, Paul's writing to the church Christ in uh, Paul's writing the Church Christ in Rome. It would help if I'm in the right book. I'll be with you shortly. There we go. And in chapter 1, he kind of tells how the Gentiles are wrong, and you can almost sense the Jewish brethren sitting back going, yeah, that's right, that's those Gentiles. But in chapter 2, he says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You who are Jewish, um, you got some issues too. Romans chapter 2, verse 17, he says it this way. Paul writes and says, Indeed, you're called a Jew. Rest on the law. Make your boast in God. You know his will. Approve the things that are excellent. Bring instruction. Being instructed out of the law. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. And I must say, as a member of the Lord's church, New Testament people of God, like the Old Testament people of God, we should, indeed, ourselves, be confident that we are a guide to the blind. Aren't we told to take the gospel light to other people? Aren't we? we we've been entrusted with the gospel, right? And so we, we could say this applies to us too. We believe we're a light to those who are in darkness, instructors of the foolish, teachers of babes, having the form of knowledge and the truth of the scriptures. But then Paul says, you, therefore, because you're all those things, you, you, you're this teacher, you're this light to the, to, the, to the blind, you're this guide. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You preach that a man should not steal. Do you steal? Are, 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 you, are you selling people this public persona that, that they're not supposed to do this and yet privately you're not living what you're teaching? You're not showing the same example. You're not the person you claim they have to be? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? He said, you, you tell them that they've got to respect and, and reverence God. They've got to keep God's commandments. But if you're living a life wherein you're not doing that, 
Are you? He says, verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You're trying to sell them on something that you're not willing to be yourself. And this is written to the church, Romans 1.7. And so when it comes to evangelizing already, being sometimes as difficult as it is, and, and especially in a world that is so filled and so trained and so programmed because they're deceived every day, there's a question that you and I must constantly ask ourselves, and this is it. Is the same Jesus Christ that I am seeking to share with them with my mouth the same Jesus Christ that they've seen come out of my life in the past. In other words, let me give you four examples. How am I ever going to be able to convince the lost world around me today that Jesus is indeed the Prince of Peace. Unless every time the world was filled with panic and confusion over the latest crisis of the week in the past, they saw me as a Christian exhibit nothing but the peace and security that only comes from knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Number two, how and why on earth should I ever expect to be able to get people to accept the fact that this Jesus whom I am trying to preach to them is the Lord of love and forgiveness if they have not already come to know and expect me to be one who consistently loves and forgives and prays for my enemies and those who persecute me. How can I? Oh yeah, Jesus is the Lord of love and forgiveness. Jesus can help you forgive. But if in the past they've seen me not be a forgiving person, they ain't buying it. They're not gonna. Number three, how am I as a Christian ever with any sort of sense of, of integrity and sincerity going to be able to convince others that my God is the God of all comfort. If they have not seen me in some of my most personal tragedies and disasters still exhibiting the comfort that I get from my God, they're not going to buy it. And going back finally to last week's lesson, how on earth am I ever with a straight face an honest heart in any semblance of believability going to be able to convince somebody else that Jesus saves unless they have already seen in me the absolute confidence and assurance that I have that I am indeed saved by the blood of Christ. If I'm going to tell them you need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and yet I am living a life that, that does not have that confidence that I am saved, if I'm walking in the light, yes. How can I tell somebody else that baptism doth now save you, 1 Peter 3.21, if I've been baptized and I'm walking in the light and I don't know that I'm saved? How, where's the integrity? Where's the, they're going to sense that.
Fact is, I can't do those things. And they won't ever come around and become Christians if they even sense, think they smell, or see in my life anything other or different than that which I am so desperately trying to convince them of while I am seeking to save their soul. I want to close with a few thoughts. I'm going to ask you to please turn in your Bibles to the first epistle of Peter. I want you to note that this is, this is in, in one way of looking at it, what the entire epistle of 1 Peter is all about. It's kind of a breakdown I want to share with you. I'm not going to read much except a couple of verses, but please follow along. Chapter 1, 1 Peter, begins by reminding us of the eternal life that we have already been given in Christ Jesus, which serves as the incentive for us to live differently than the lost world all around us. For us to, to live in such a different fashion that they can see, like the thief on the cross did with Jesus, that there's something entirely different about the way we live, that, that there's an integrity and a sincerity and the words that come out of our mouth are matching the actions that come out of our lives. Chapter two shows us how to therefore grow, grow in becoming that totally different and Jesus-reliant people that he saved us to be. He saved us to be different. He says in verse 9, you're a chosen generation, a royal priest, that a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He goes on in verse 11 to say, I therefore beg you as strangers and aliens or sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fresh fleshly lusts which war against the soul and have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may by your good conduct which they observe glorify God. In other words, when they say, hey, this guy that's trying to sell me on Jesus, this guy over here is talking to me about Jesus, let me tell you about this guy. Oh, wait a minute, I can't. Because he's always treated me honestly, fairly. I've never heard a bad word come out of her mouth. Oh, wait. I'd like to tell you there's something wrong with what this person's selling, but you know what? <laughs> they're living exactly what they're preaching. So maybe there's something to this God that they're talking about. That's right here in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. He goes on in chapter 2 to give examples of those ways in which we are to live and behave differently. Obeying the laws of the land, verses 13 through 17. If you don't think that's a big deal, go down the road at the speed limit and watch how many cars go by you. By loving and forgiving, even when we are abused and mistreated, verses 18 through 25. Chapter 3 continues with that same theme, relating what honest, legitimate, different than the world around us behavior is to look like when it comes to Christian wives, verses one through six of chapter three. Christian husbands, chapter seven, I'm sorry, verse seven of chapter three. And all of the rest of us in general, verses eight through 12. It is these honest, sincere, foreign to the pagan world at large qualities that are gonna make some of them upset. 
But more importantly, it's going to make some of them curious enough to ask questions so that, so that maybe then we can convert them, verses 13 through 22 of chapter 3. Chapter 4 once again reiterates the real, legitimate, verifiable Christian attributes that make us different and that absolutely must be on display every day in, the, in our lives while chapter 5 reveals the absolute assurance of the God-given rewards for such a life lived. The bottom line for us to always keep in mind is this. If we are going to be anywhere near as successful at everyday evangelism, at saving the souls of those lost people all around us, if the church right here in Shoto, or anywhere else in the world for that matter, but, but right here in Shoto, if it is ever going to grow and prosper the way it surely, surely was meant to, the way, it, the, way it, the way it surely could and the way it surely should, then people must every day see the real, legitimate, and sincere proof of the gospel evident in you and me long before we ever seek to plant it in their hearts with the words which come out of our mouths. The day that opportunity arises, let us always be a people. Remember, back in school, some of you that are my age, as you now know tonight, but remember show and tell when you were a little kid? Remember show and tell? probably don't do that anymore, but you bring in this item and you, you, know, you show and you tell about it, right? Show and tell. How many remember that? Yeah, come on, come on, date yourselves, let's do this, okay. I want you to remember show and tell in this sense. You had to have it to show in order to tell. That's our formula for converting others to Jesus in a skeptical world. We must first show them what Jesus looks like. And can, we must show them what he can do in a sinner's life before we try to tell them what he can do for them and theirs. Go out this week and show and tell Jesus Christ. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God through the blood of Christ, we would love to baptize you into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're here tonight, you need the prayers of the church. Maybe you're somebody who says, you know what, I, I, haven't, I haven't quite lived up. And, and none of us are perfect, and I understand that. And, but people are looking. People are looking to doubt that which we preach. I've been trained that way. Maybe you're somebody here tonight, and, and you need strength to just be a better Christian example. Let me tell you what. I don't care how long you've been a member of this congregation. I don't care how long you've been in Christ. There is no shame in walking down that aisle and saying, you know what? I need a little help. If that's you tonight, for everyone that makes a trip down the aisle, I've discovered that there's at least probably 10 more in the building that could, maybe all of us. If you need the prayers of the church or to become a child of God tonight, don't just sit there. Let everybody else sing and encourage you. Please come forward now if you need to as we stand and sing.